Volume Two, Part Sixteen of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Histories, Volume Two, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Translated by A. D. Godley, Volume 2, Part 16. The Lacedaemonians are the only Greeks who tell this story, but in what I write I follow the Greek report, and hold that the Greeks correctly recount these kings of the Dorians as far back as Perseus, son of Danae. They make no mention of the god, and prove these kings to be Greek for by that time they had come to be classified as Greeks. I said as far back as Perseus, and I took the matter no further than that, because no one is named as the mortal father of Perseus, as Amphitryon is named father of Heracles. So I used correct reasoning when I said that the Greek record is correct as far back as Perseus. Farther back than that, if the king's ancestors in each generation, from Danae, daughter of Acrisius upward, be reckoned, then the leaders of the Dorians will be shown to be true-born Egyptians. Thus have I traced their lineage according to the Greek story. But the Persian tale is that Perseus himself was an Assyrian and became a Greek, which his forebears had not been. The Persians say that the ancestors of Acrisius had no bond of kinship with Perseus, and they indeed were, as the Greeks say, Egyptians. Enough of these matters. Why, and for what achievements these men, being Egyptian, won the kingship of the Dorians, has been told by others. So I will let it go, and will make mention of matters which others have not touched. These privileges the Spartans have given to their kings. Two priesthoods of Zeus called Lacedaemon and of Zeus of Heaven. They wage war against whatever land they wish, and no Spartan can hinder them in this on peril of being put under a curse. When the armies go forth, the kings go out first and return last. One hundred chosen men guard them in their campaigns. They sacrifice as many sheep and goats as they wish at the start of their expeditions, and take the hides and backs of all sacrificed beasts. Such are their rights in war. In peace the powers given them are as follows. At all public sacrifices the kings first sit down to the banquet, and are first served, each of them receiving a portion double of what is given to the rest of the company. They make the first libations, and the hides of the sacrificed beasts are theirs. At each new moon, and each seventh day of the first part of the month, a full-grown victim for Apollo's temple, a bushel of barley meal, and a Laconian quart of wine are given to each from the public store, and chief seats are set apart for them at the games. It is their right to appoint whatever citizens they wish to be protectors of foreigners, 
and they each choose two Pythians. The Pythians are the ambassadors to Delphi, and eat with the kings at the public expense. If the kings do not come to the public dinner, two kenixes of barley meal and half a pint of wine are sent to their houses. But when they come, they receive a double share of everything, and the same honour shall be theirs when they are invited by private citizens to dinner. They keep all oracles that are given, though the Pythians also know them. The kings alone judge cases concerning the rightful possessor of an unwedded heiress if her father has not betrothed her, and cases concerning public roads. If a man desires to adopt a son, it is done in the presence of the kings. They sit with the twenty-eight elders in council. If they do not come, the elders most closely related to them hold the king's privilege, giving two votes over and above the third, which is their own. The kings are granted these rights from the Spartan commonwealth while they live. When they die, their rights are as follows. Horsemen proclaim their death in all parts of Laconia, and in the city women go about beating on cauldrons. When this happens, two free persons from each house, a man and a woman, are required to wear mourning, or incur heavy penalties if they fail to do so. The Lacedaemonians have the same custom at the deaths of their kings as the foreigners in Asia. Most foreigners use the same custom at their kings' deaths. When a king of the Lacedaemonians dies, a fixed number of their subject neighbours must come to the funeral from all Lacedaemon besides the Spartans. When these and the helots and the Spartans themselves have assembled in one place to the number of many thousands together with the women, they zealously beat their foreheads and make long and loud lamentation, calling that king that is most recently dead the best of all their kings. Whenever a king dies in war, they make an image of him and carry it out on a well-spread bier. For ten days after the burial there are no assemblies or elections, and they mourn during these days. The Lacedaemonians also resemble the Persians in this. When one king is dead and another takes his office, this successor releases from debt any Spartan who owes a debt to the king or to the commonwealth. Among the Persians, the king, at the beginning of his reign, forgives all cities their arrears of tribute. The Lacedaemonians resemble the Egyptians, in that their heralds and flute-players and cooks inherit the craft from their fathers, a flute-player's son being a flute-player, and a cook's son a cook, and a herald's son a herald. No others usurp their places, making themselves heralds by loudness of voice. They ply their craft by right of birth. Such is the way of these matters. While Cleomenes was in Aegina working for the common good of Hellas, Demaratus slandered him, not out of care for the Aeginetans, but out of jealousy and envy. Once Cleomenes returned home from Aegina, 
he planned to remove Demaratus from his kingship, using the following affair as a pretext against him. Ariston, king of Sparta, had married twice, but had no children. He did not admit that he himself was responsible, so he married a third time. This is how it came about. He had among the Spartans a friend to whom he was especially attached. This man's wife was by far the most beautiful woman in Sparta, but she who was now most beautiful had once been the ugliest. Her nurse considered her inferior looks and how she was of wealthy people yet unattractive, and, seeing how the parents felt her appearance to be a great misfortune, she contrived to carry the child every day to the sacred precinct of Helen, which is in the place called Therapne, beyond the sacred precinct of Phoebus. Every time the nurse carried the child there, she set her beside the image, and beseeched the goddess to release the child from her ugliness. Once, as she was leaving the sacred precinct, it is said that a woman appeared to her, and asked her what she was carrying in her arms. The nurse said she was carrying a child, and the woman bade her show it to her, but she refused, saying that the parents had forbidden her to show it to anyone. But the woman strongly bade her show it to her, and when the nurse saw how important it was to her, she showed her the child. The woman stroked the child's head, and said that she would be the most beautiful woman in all Sparta. From that day her looks changed, and when she reached the time for marriage, Agitus, son of Alcidas, married her. This man was Ariston's friend. So love for this woman pricked Ariston, and he contrived as follows. He promised to give to his comrade any one thing out of all he owned, whatever Agitus might choose, and he bade his comrade make him the same promise. Agitus had no fear about his wife, seeing that Ariston was already married, so he agreed, and they took oaths on these terms. Ariston gave Agitus whatever it was that he chose out of all his treasures, and then, seeking equal recompense from him, tried to take the wife of his comrade. Agitus said that he had agreed to anything but that, but he was forced by his oath and by the deceitful trick to let his wife be taken. In this way, Ariston married his third wife after divorcing the second one. But his new wife gave birth to Demaratus too soon, before ten lunar months had passed. When one of his servants announced to him as he sat in council with the ephors that he had a son, Ariston, knowing the time of the marriage, counted up the months on his fingers, and swore on oath, "'It's not mine!' The ephors heard this, but did not make anything of it. When the boy grew up, Ariston regretted having said that, for he firmly believed Demaratus to be his own son. He named him Demaratus, because before his birth all the Spartan populace 
had prayed that Ariston, the man most highly esteemed out of all the kings of Sparta, might have a son. Thus he was named Demaratus, which means answer to the people's prayer. Time passed, and Ariston died, so Demaratus held the kingship. But it seems that these matters had to become known, and caused Demaratus to lose his kingship. He had already fallen out with Cleomenes when he had brought the army back from Eleusis, and now they were even more at odds when Cleomenes crossed over after the Aegeanetans who were Medizing. Cleomenes wanted revenge, so he made a deal with Leotychides, son of Menares, son of Aegis, of the same family as Demaratus. The deal was that Leotychides would go with Cleomenes against the Aegeanetans if he became king. Leotychides had already become strongly hostile to Demaratus for the following reason. Leotychides was betrothed to Perculus, daughter of Demarminus, but Demaratus plotted and robbed him of his marriage, stealing Perculus and marrying her first. From this affair Leotychides was hostile toward Demaratus, so at Cleomenes' instigation he took an oath against him, saying that he was not king of the Spartans by right, since he was not Ariston's son. After making this oath, he prosecuted him, recalling that utterance which Ariston had made when the servant told him he had a son, and he counted up the months and swore that it was not his. Taking his stand on this remark, Leotychides declared that Demaratus was not Ariston's son, and that he was not rightly king of Sparta, bringing as witnesses the ephors who had been sitting beside Ariston and heard him say this. Disputes arose over it, so the Spartans resolved to ask the oracle at Delphi if Demaratus was the son of Ariston. At Cleomenes' instigation this was revealed to the Pythia. He had won over a man of great influence among the Delphians, Cobon, son of Aristophantus, and Cobon persuaded the priestess Perialus to say what Cleomenes wanted her to. When the ambassadors asked if Demaratus was the son of Ariston, the Pythia gave judgment that he was not. All this came to light later. Cobon was exiled from Delphi, and Perialus was deposed from her position. So it was concerning Demaratus' loss of the kingship, and from Sparta he went into exile among the Medes because of the following reproach. After he was deposed from the kingship, he was elected to office. When it was the time of the Gymnopedia, Leotychides, now king in his place, saw him in the audience, and, as a joke and an insult, sent a messenger to him to ask what it was like to hold office after being king. He was grieved by the question, and said that he had experience of both, while Leotychides did not, and that this question would be the beginning for Sparta of either immense evil or immense good fortune. He said this, 
covered his head, left the theatre, and went home, where he immediately made preparations and sacrificed an ox to Zeus. Then he summoned his mother. When she came in, he put some of the entrails in her hands, and entreated her, saying, Mother, appealing to Zeus of the household, and to all the other gods, I beseech you to tell me the truth. Who is my father? Tell me truly. Leotychides said in the disputes that you were already pregnant by your former husband when you came to Ariston. Others say, more foolishly, that you approached to one of the servants, the ass-keeper, and that I am his son. I adjure you by the gods to speak what is true. If you have done anything of what they say, you are not the only one. You are in company with many women. There is much talk at Sparta that Ariston did not have childbearing seed in him, or his former wives would have given him children. Thus he spoke. His mother answered, My son, since you adjure me by entreaties to speak the truth, I will speak out to you all that is true. On the third night after Ariston brought me to his house, a phantom resembling him came to me. It came and lay with me, and then put on me the garlands which it had. It went away, and when Ariston came in later and saw me with the garlands, he asked who gave them to me. I said he did, but he denied it. I swore an oath that just a little while before he had come in and lain with me and given me the garlands, and I said it was not good of him to deny it. When he saw me swearing, he perceived that this was some divine affair for the garlands had clearly come from the hero's precinct which is established at the courtyard doors, which they call the precinct of Astrabacus, and the seers responded that this was the same hero who had come to me. Thus, my son, you have all you want to know. Either you are from this hero, and Astrabacus the hero is your father, or Ariston is, for I conceived you that night. As for how your enemies chiefly attack you, saying that Ariston himself, when your birth was announced, denied in front of a large audience that you were his, because the ten months had not yet been completed, he spoke an idle word, out of ignorance of such things. Some women give birth after nine months or seven months. Not all complete the ten months. I gave birth to you, my son, after seven months. A little later, Ariston himself recognized that he had blurted out that speech because of foolishness. Do not believe other stories about your manner of birth. You have heard the whole truth. May the wife of Leotychides himself, and the wives of the others who say these things, give birth to children fathered by ass-keepers. Thus his mother spoke. After learning what he desired, Demaratus took provisions and travelled to Elis, pretending that he was going to Delphi to inquire of the oracle. But the Lacedaemonians suspected that he planned to escape and went in pursuit. 
Demaratus somehow went across to Zacynthus from Elis before them. The Lacedaemonians crossed over after him and laid hands on him, carrying off his servants. But the Zacynthians refused to give him up, and later he crossed from there to Asia and went to King Darius, who received him in grand style and gave him lands and cities. So Demaratus reached Asia through such chances. A man who had gained much renown in Lacedaemon by his many achievements and his wisdom, and by conferring on the state the victory in a chariot race he had won at Olympia. He was the only king of Sparta who did this. Leotychides, son of Menares, succeeded to the kingship after Demaratus was deposed. A son was born to him, Zeuxidemus, called by some of the Spartans Siniscus. This Zeuxidemus never became king of Sparta, for he died before Leotychides, leaving his son Archidemus. After the loss of Zeuxidemus, Leotychides married a second wife, Eurydame, sister of Menius, and daughter of Diactorides. By her he had no male offspring, but a daughter, Lampito, to whom Archidemus, son of Zeuxidemus, was married by Leotychides. But Leotychides also did not come to old age in Sparta. He was punished for his dealings with Demaratus, as I will show. He led a Lacedaemonian army to Thessaly, and when he could have subdued all the country, he took a great bribe. After being caught in the act of hoarding a sleeve full of silver there in the camp, he was brought before a court and banished from Sparta, and his house was destroyed. He went into exile at Tegea and died in that country. This happened long afterwards. When Cleomenes' dealings with Demaratus came off successfully, he immediately took Leotychides with him and went to punish the Aegeanetans, with whom he was terribly angry because of their insulting behaviour. When the Aegeanetans saw that both kings had come after them, they now deemed it best to offer no further resistance. The kings chose ten men of Aegina, who were most honoured for wealth and lineage, among them Crius, son of Polycritus, and Cassambus, son of Aristocrates, the two most powerful men in Aegina. They carried them to Attica, and gave them into the keeping of the Athenians, the bitterest foes of the Aegeanetans. Later, Cleomenes' treacherous plot against Demaratus became known. He was seized with fear of the Spartans, and secretly fled to Thessaly. From there he came to Arcadia, and stirred up disorder, uniting the Arcadians against Sparta. Among his methods of binding them by oath to follow him wherever he led, was his zeal to bring the chief men of Arcadia to the city of Nonacris, and make them swear by the water of the Styx. Near this city is said to be the Arcadian water of the Styx, and this is its nature. It is a stream of small appearance, dropping from a cliff into a pool. A wall of stones runs round the pool. Nonacris, where this spring rises, is a city of Arcadia near Phineus. 
When the Lacedaemonians learned that Cleomenes was doing this, they took fright and brought him back to Sparta to rule on the same terms as before. Cleomenes had already been not entirely in his right mind, and on his return from exile a mad sickness fell upon him. Any Spartan that he happened to meet he would hit in the face with his staff. For doing this, and because he was out of his mind, his relatives bound him in the stocks. When he was in the stocks, and saw that his guard was left alone, he demanded a dagger. The guard at first refused to give it, but Cleomenes threatened what he would do to him when he was freed, until the guard, who was a helot, was frightened by the threats and gave him the dagger. Cleomenes took the weapon and set about slashing himself from his shins upwards. From the shin to the thigh he cut his flesh lengthways, then from the thigh to the hip and the sides, until he reached the belly and cut it into strips. Thus he died, as most of the Greeks say, because he persuaded the Pythian priestess to tell the tale of Demaratus. The Athenians alone say it was because he invaded Eleusis and laid waste the precinct of the gods. The Argives say it was because when Argives had taken refuge after the battle in their temple of Argus, he brought them out and cut them down, then paid no heed to the sacred grove and set it on fire. As Cleomenes was seeking divination at Delphi, the oracle responded that he would take Argos. When he came with Spartans to the river Erosinus, which is said to flow from the Stymphalian lake, this lake issues into a cleft out of sight and reappears at Argos, and from that place onwards the stream is called by the Argives Erosinus. When Cleomenes came to this river, he offered sacrifices to it. The omens were in no way favourable for his crossing, so he said that he honoured the Erosinus for not betraying its countrymen. But even so the Argives would not go unscathed. Then he withdrew and led his army seaward to Thyrea, where he sacrificed a bull to the sea and carried his men on shipboard to the region of Tiryns and to Norplia. The Argives heard of this, and came to the coast to do battle with him. When they had come near Tiryns, and were at the place called Hesipiah, they encamped opposite the Lacedaemonians, leaving only a little space between the armies. There the Argives had no fear of fair fighting, but rather of being captured by a trick. This was the affair referred to by that oracle which the Pythian priestess gave to the Argives and Milesians in common, which ran thus. When the female defeats the male, and drives him away, winning glory in Argos, she will make many Argive women tear their cheeks. As some day one of men to come will say, the dread thrice-coiled serpent, died tamed by the spear. All these things coming together spread fear among the Argives. Therefore they resolved to defend themselves by making use of the enemy's herald, and they performed their resolve in this way. 
whenever the Spartan herald signalled anything to the Lacedaemonians, the Argives did the same thing. When Cleomenes saw that the Argives did whatever was signalled by his herald, he commanded that when the herald cried the signal for breakfast, they should then put on their armour and attack the Argives. The Lacedaemonians performed this command, and when they assaulted the Argives, they caught them at breakfast in obedience to the herald's signal. They killed many of them, and far more fled for refuge into the grove of Argus, which the Lacedaemonians encamped around and guarded. Then Cleomenes' plan was this. He had with him some deserters from whom he learned the names. Then he sent a herald calling by name the Argives that were shut up in the sacred precinct and inviting them to come out, saying that he had their ransom. Among the Peloponnesians there is a fixed ransom of two minae to be paid for every prisoner. So Cleomenes invited about fifty Argives to come out one after another and murdered them. Somehow the rest of the men in the temple precinct did not know this was happening, for the grove was thick, and those inside could not see how those outside were faring, until one of them climbed a tree and saw what was being done. Thereafter they would not come out at the herald's call. Then Cleomenes bade all the helots pile wood about the grove. They obeyed, and he burnt the grove. When the fire was now burning, he asked of one of the deserters to what god the grove belonged. The man said it was of Argos. When he heard that, he groaned aloud, Apollo, god of oracles, you have gravely deceived me by saying that I would take Argos. This, I guess, is the fulfilment of that prophecy. Then Cleomenes sent most of his army back to Sparta, while he himself took a thousand of the best warriors and went to the temple of Hera to sacrifice. When he wished to sacrifice at the altar, the priest forbade him, saying that it was not holy for a stranger to sacrifice there. Cleomenes ordered the helots to carry the priest away from the altar and whip him, and he performed the sacrifice. After doing this, he returned to Sparta. But after his return, his enemies brought him before the ephors, saying that he had been bribed not to take Argos when he might have easily taken it. Cleomenes alleged, whether falsely or truly I cannot rightly say, but this he alleged in his speech, that he had supposed the god's oracle to be fulfilled by his taking of the temple of Argos. Therefore he had thought it best not to make any attempt on the city before he had learned from the sacrifices whether the god would deliver it to him or withstand him. When he was taking omens in Hera's temple, a flame of fire had shone forth from the breast of the image, and so he learned the truth of the matter, that he would not take Argos. If the flame had come out of the head of the image, he would have taken the city from head to foot utterly, but its coming from the breast signified that he had done as much as the god willed to happen. 
This plea of his seemed to the Spartans to be credible and reasonable, and he far outdistanced the pursuit of his accusers. End of Volume 2, Part 16 Recording by Graham Redmond